When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, and just before we begin our latest podcast, I just wanted to take a moment and let you all know that on June 10th, there is a live stream coming from Distractions Media, where we're doing a little bit of fundraising for our Distractions Media team to help some of our colleagues get to Gen Con, the big gaming convention down in Indianapolis. If you'd like to help them out, uh, you can do so by going to twitch.tv forward slash Distractions Media on the day to watch the event or you can head over to our webpage at distractionsmedia.com forward slash livestream all one word uh, where we have links to the donations and all the various things that are going on including the schedule and you can find everything we do at distractionsmedia.com Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 47, Celtic Christianity and the Conflict with Rome. When we last left Christianity in Britain, the Welsh had closed ranks, slowly moving as the 6th century ran its course, from a church full of missionary zeal to one which began to innovate the way it worshipped and how it reflected itself. First, Wales, unlike much of the Western Christians, did not change the dating of Easter via the new calendar. Thus, they were much more orthodox in their thinking than the rest of the West. Second, their monks did not shave their heads in the same way that monks from other monastic traditions did. We do not fully know how it looked. We have only can guess based on descriptions given by Bede and others. Um, and I've seen uh, versions of it, which is basically the front part of the forehead uh, shaved up and around a little bit. Uh, so as to expose the front part of the head. Or another version I've seen is basically where they did a wedge in the top of their head, but that those are purely guessing. Nobody really knows 100%. The, and like so many of these practices, ortho, orthodoxy was important. If you weren't following the real version of worship that was perceived as being her, heretical, or at the very least out of line with the rest, uh, these debates in this century, especially in the 7th century, would have long-term consequences. It created bitterness between the Welsh and Saxon churches as they fought for ecclesiastical and spiritual control of the island, along with those fighting for the physical one. The Christian faith for a number of years had remained largely one of local control. Diversity in practice spread far and wide, including both the eastern and western halves of the former Roman Empire. As the 6th century closed and the 7th century began, there was a, starting, a startling change in the central nature of worship and how the governing power of the Pope created a much narrower sense of the faith. It would take a number of centuries before that was completely ironed out, but that was kind of where it really began to be about what goes on in Rome influences everyone else. 
And of course, it also spread the seeds of diversity between the Western Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. In Rome, Pope Gregory decided to send Augustine to the Anglo-Saxons to convert people to Christianity. The story went that Gregory had one day seen Saxon slaves in the Forum in Rome and was always impressed by them. This idea seems peculiar to our ears, but yet appears to have a grain of truth to it. The concept that you would be impressed by a physical form and that it would be enough of an impression that you felt the need to do something about it. it one could argue a similar sort of circumstance on the opposite side of that for Patrick, who, when he headed as a slave to Ireland, felt the need to go back. In this case, Gregory felt that the Saxons needed to be converted. Now, of course, there's a question of what, whose Saxons are these? Are these German Saxons? Are these English Saxons? We're not entirely clear. Uh, B doesn't really clarify. But Augustine wasn't sent to the Germans. He was sent to the Saxons in Britain. And thus it was at the end of the 6th century. He, along with some other missionaries, uh, arrived in Canton. And when they arrived there, began to try and convert the Saxons. Um, they had a series of successes and failures, and in the writings of Bede, we see it, his opinion of the Welsh or British church, as he describes it. He will constantly complain um, about how the British monks didn't help Augustine. In fact, there's a very specific story that he, he gives where he talks about the fact that the British monks said to themselves... They were called to go see Augustine. They decided to go see him, but they want to meet him, not to basically work with him immediately or accept his overlordship, but rather they want to see that he's humble enough to accept them as being on his level. And so when they arrive at the circumstance, the monks are then treated to Augustine sitting, not rising when they came, not acting at humble at all as far as they perceived it. And again, this is Bede's description of this. And Bede is not a friend of the Welsh church. So the fact that he put this in here makes me wonder if there's an earlier source for this that he got this from. And that it may have been a Welsh source. And so these Welsh bishops were offended by this. Now, he had said that they'd come from Bangor, which is kind of the seat of the, the bishopric in that area. And that they were so offended by it that they walked away from Augustine and, and refused to help him convert the Saxons. And because of that, in his anger, uh, Augustine is claimed to have cursed them, basically saying they would have no peace because they didn't decide to actually uh, save the Saxons. And thus, when 1,200 of them are killed later in the example that Bede gives at the Battle of Chester, it's justification for what Augustine has said. You know, it's not a case of these pagans wiped our fellow churchmen out. It's these pagans have killed these church people because they walked away from what God asked them to do, and thus they deserved it. Which is kind of a common thread in the biblical stories, the idea that, that non-believers are the ones who punish the believers. Jesus is punished by Romans, not by Jews, his own people. Uh, the idea that we would then sort of treat those pagans as separate, as different, as someone very much not to be 
criticized as much uh, can be seen a lot more politically than they're given note in the Bible, uh, especially when you look at the Babylonians who the Jews were under the thumb of for a number of years versus the uh, uh, Persians who had, in quotes, freed them. So thus, we're always kind of treated a little better in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, you have the fact that the Romans are both the enemy and Satan and, you know, these poor pagans who we need to tell and, and Christianize. So there's always this push and pull of these kind of ideas. So that kind of thing works for Bede's favor. You know, it's a way of saying that, that the pagans became the judgment of God upon them. So... It's a very petty situation. It it goes on through these kind of things where, you know, the wrath of God is upon you because you did something wrong. And so we'll make sure you pay for it. <laughs> and we can talk about this all day, but that's kind of where that that story ends. But the key point of all this is, and I think one of the things that we should take away from this, is that there was a division between what each uh, Christian Catholic faith in Britain upheld and the Celtic Catholics did not exactly worship the same way as the Roman Catholics who had come to Britain to convert the Saxons. Now Bede claims there's a number of things they weren't doing right. We won't go in depth because it's too, I mean it's very technical and kind of confusing and in some cases there's no proof for some of the stuff he says because we just don't have any other evidence of it other than what he was saying but i think it's interesting to look at now let's be clear when we're talking about this um when you look at these differences in orthodoxy from rome and versus these welsh church people they're always measured as being on the wrong side of the ledger the welsh for their part obviously stuck to their understanding while other christians in the island would eventually fall in step with Rome before the Welsh would, which I think is an interesting dynamic as well. Also, there isn't a sharp diversion from Rome in the way other sects branched out in the history of the church. This is not Protestantism versus Catholicism. This is Catholicism and a slight difference in Catholicism, which a hundred years ago was the same, but now it's slightly different. And so thus different is bad. So, that's kind of part of the problem. In fact, mostly these are just tiny little matters of sticking points that in our eyes would be so overblown, but mattered to them. You know, the calculations of Easter mattered to them. The way you wore your hair mattered to them. All of this kind of thing was important. But I think the easiest way to explain it in a British sense, and I can explain it in an American sense as well, is it's a bit like the difference between rugby league and rugby union, rather than the difference between football slash soccer, for my American and Canadian listeners, uh, and rugby. There isn't that much different. It's just some of the rules are slightly different. Some of the ways you play the game are a little bit different. Uh, if we're in North America, you might say it's the same difference between the Canadian Football League and the NFL. There are minor differences, but if you play one game or the other, it's not so different that you can't do both. Uh, in fact, quite often you do do both in the case of the Canadian Football League and even in the NFL. There have been Canadian Football League players who went into the NFL. Aside from my sports analogy, 
that's kind of how to look at it. Don't look at it as like this massive separation. Uh, some neo-paganists, some new Christian people believe that Christian Celtic Christianity is somehow very different. It's not. And I think uh, Professor Caitlin Corning had a pretty good quote when it comes to this. Those in the Celtic-speaking regions acknowledge and respected the papacy as much as any area did at this time. And the Irish and British were no more pro-woman, pro-environment, or even more spiritual than the rest of the church. So, in other words, the differences are there, they're important, but they're only important to a certain degree, and they're not so important that the Pope would call them heretics, or excommunicate them, or call for their destruction. It was just an argument about certain issues. Now, they were important at the time amongst the monks, but they weren't terribly important to the overall worship of the church. And we have to remember, the church in this time period is not the monolith that we think of with the Catholic Church of the later Middle Ages. This is a church where, yes, the Pope is seen as to be Peter, the head of the church. But the reality of it is, is Christianity is very diverse in the way the flavors of it go. So we have a different reaction. We have different ways of thinking about and dealing with things and different ways of, of considering certain events in Christian history. I think the most... If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast. And the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Interesting idea is what are the differences? So why are the Welsh and Celtic cousins appeared to have diverged from Rome? And why is it seen as a tempest in a teapot of disagreements? In other words, why do modern scholars basically look at it as not that big of a deal? Or in our modern minds especially, we consider the when you bring up, well, it was this, it was that, it was this, it was that, most people will go, well, that seems really peculiar to have an argument about, but religions can and do have arguments about some strange stuff. Um, so that's not really a surprise. So what do we know that was different about the Celtic Church? Well, let's start from the basics of what we were talking about last time, which is that there are more rural than urban, where the Roman Church was centralized and and it was dealt with from a civitas so the civitas was your central point which then became the ecclesiastical area that controlled the church functionaries you know your bishops controlled a certain region the priests controlled another region and the the local priests controlled a smaller region than that but they were all based around a very urban way of life well that way of life had ended in wales early in the end of the Roman Empire, and may have ended before the Roman Empire itself ended, or may have never really been, especially in the northern half, where we don't really have lots of evidence of settlement outside of Chester in the north, and in the south, that's only really in certain areas. So in West Wales, and especially in North Wales, you didn't have that kind of thing. And we talked a few weeks back about the importance of the Llan, or the central point, or the burial area, or things that were significant to the old gods now became important to the church. And so in doing so, it became a much more rural church. Things were built up in the rural areas. Control was centralized around rural environments, about small communities, not about big ones. And even as they developed Bangor and uh, St. David's in the south, you still were based in small communities. These were not massive centers of learning, at least as far as the rest of the population went. The monks certainly were developing a level of understanding, but they weren't the same. I mean, you think about, if you've ever seen it, near Aberystwyth, there's a place called Strata Florida, which will become much more important to our story later. That area is off in the middle of nowhere. And of course, this is from a different uh, monastery and a different period of time, but I think to a degree it had a similar structure. David preached the idea that you would be isolated, that you would be very, very rudimentary in how you did things. You didn't use animals to grow food. You didn't use, you know, anybody else's help to do anything. There was no slaves. There was no poor working for you. You worked for them. And so that mentality was a little different from the rest of the church. It's not to say that there wasn't that going on. It's just that if you look at the actual functional central parts of the church in Rome and those that came out of Gaul especially, which is where these monks were coming from, they were not believers in that style of church. They had grown up with the Sivata style and they were more 
attached to it and more drawn by it. Now, another difference, of course, is the art style, which in every local area was a little bit different. But, I mean, we know if you've seen a Celtic cross, you know that doesn't look like a normal cross. The way that Celtic art was utilized was taking an old pagan form and creating it into a Christianized form. And so, again, differed a little bit. That isn't critical to an argument. Not important, obviously, because everybody differs in their style to some degree. However, the ones that really matter in the real arguments are around Easter. And this is where Bede focuses most of his upset at the British church in not following what they were following. And this goes for the British church in Ireland. British church, I'm saying in Ireland. The Irish church, I should say. The British churches in Scotland and the British churches in Wales and probably in Cornwall as well. You have a following of Easter. Now, why do they have this debate about when Easter is positioned? It turns out the debate is, comes around not because of the speci specification about Easter, but rather around when the equinox is. And the reason for this is, is because at the Council of Nicaea, which was in 325 AD, uh, we're going to throw some dates and locations at you. I, if you can keep bear with me, this will clarify. There is a major council. This was a council that decided a number of different things, including um, gave us the first understanding of what the Trinity is. Uh, but what it also did was it dedicated a date to when Easter was to be observed. Now, why did they do that? In part, because they were getting tired of people following the... Jewish system of Passover, because uh, in the old Roman system, the old Roman calendar, the end of the year was actually April 1st. So if you followed the Jewish lunar calendar, you would end up with uh, Easter possibly happening twice a year, effectively, because it would happen in March, and then it would happen again, or happen in April, I should say, and then happen again in March. So then you had this dynamic of having two Easters on a year, which was scandalous. So they immediately nixed that idea. So they wanted to have it after April 1st so that it would always fall in that concept. Now, the equinox, at least initially, was believed to be on March 25th. This works very neatly if you believe that Christmas, December 25th, is when Christ was born. And at that point, of course, everybody did. So the concept was is that he was conceived on March 25th, born on December 25th, the symmetry is beautiful, and as we know in religion, symmetry sometimes overwrites reality. Um, so that worked very well for everyone, and they all thought it was a great idea until somebody went, no, 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 the equinox is actually the 21st of March, not the 25th of March. And they started to change how the calendar was kept. And they also started to make these things called tables, which were supposed to help let everyone know how to calculate Easter. And each of these tables were based around March 21st or March 25th. In the Celtic tradition, they had taken up the March 25th position and had based their calendar on a very convoluted system, which apparently is actually only local to the Celtic church. Their calculations were based on a really interesting system, which I, again, don't want to go into it here because it's really, really confusing. Even as you read it, you start to find, unless you're really interested in that kind of thing, then you'll want to look more into this. But the idea was, is that you would have this calendar, and this calendar would tell you 
you know, this is the date to worship Easter. Much like we do in our modern calendars where all of this stuff is pre in advance told. You can look on Google and say, when's Easter 2027? It'll tell you. Um, or you can even do it in advance of that as far as you want. But back then, it was important to have that in advance because, of course, communications were not what they once were. So if the Pope says, hey, everybody, it's Easter, by the time they find out about that in Britain, it could be sometime in, like, May. Uh, so for them, that was a big deal. So they tried to calculate it based on these tables. So initially, the tables were based around March 25th, but then at some point in the 4th and especially the 5th and 6th centuries, uh, some people came along, won't go into all the names, there is a lot of them, who come up with some new tables that say, no, 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 March 21st is the date, this is the important date, this is significant. And from here on out, we will now calculate when the Passover, or really Easter, is. And it based on that is how they calculated Easter. And so that led to all sorts of problems, because if you were really orthodox, uh, or conservative, if you want to use that term, you weren't willing to move to this new calendar. Why would I move to that newfangled thing? Um, and so that's where the debate began, because the Celtic Church still used the old calendar, and that was perceived to be wrong. Now, the other interesting discussion is the tonsor, the, the, the head shavings, because monks, as we know them, are based on the, the Roman Catholic style, which is to shave the crown of your head completely bald. Uh, the reason for that is it's supposed to rep your, the fringe of your hair was supposed to represent the crown of Christ, uh, the, the, the thorns that were placed on his head at the crucifixion. That was important to those monks. As I said earlier, the Celtic Church had a slightly different version of that, which was all very not based around that idea. One of the big debates that Bede focuses on in the Council of Whitby is the idea that this is a counterfeit version of worship that it is based off of uh, a character in the Bible who tried to imitate Christianity without success, was just a magic guy who was seen as a bit of a, a charlatan, and his name was Simon or Simeon. And so they, they justify it by saying that the Celtic version was the Simeon version. And so how dare they use that? They're not using Peter's version. They're using Simeon's version. Isn't that wrong? Isn't that terrible? Isn't that heretical? And again, this is such a debate. This is like one of those like debates you get in, in cultures where, like if you think about the nerd culture that I belong to quite vigorously, uh, where they'll debate, you know, oh, Captain Kirk is better than Captain Picard, blah, 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 blah. Those kind of debates, like they're really, really obscure and people get really upset and really committed. And this is what we see with Bede. He is committed to the idea that they are wrong and there's nothing you can say that's going to change that. And they're going to pay for being wrong. And that's where he goes back to this whole idea that Augustine said, these guys are going to pay for it because they're wrong. They're, they're bad. They're not doing things the way they're supposed to. He also mentions some form of baptismal rite that's slightly different, but there's nobody who can explain what that was, what it meant, how it was different. Were they doing immersion when everybody else was doing sprinkling? I don't really know because immersion was still pretty common uh, where you'd actually put your full body underwater um, even at that point. So it's really vague at this stage as to what was going on with that. Now, of course, local politics falls into this whole discussion. This is the Welsh. The Welsh want control of the church. They don't want to give it up to a bunch of, you know, uh, Christians come lately, to put it bluntly. They don't want the Anglo-Saxons to have control of the church. They don't want that at all. So 
having Augustine show up, land in Canterbury, establish a, a monastery in Canterbury, and then basically say that that was now the new head of the church in Britain, aggravated them to no end. It's, it, it's obvious from Bede's writings that they were very put out by this whole thing, the fact this, this monk from the mainland came over and dictated to them how things were going to go. And as we know from politics today, that can be slightly touchy. Uh, and that's kind of how it kind of worked. The British were, no, this is not how this is going to work. And of course, because the English were converted by the, the guys from Rome, they kind of won out in the end. It takes many, many years. This argument will continue for quite some time to come, believe me. But eventually they will win out and Canterbury becomes the seat of Britain. But at this point, there's still a lot of arguments, still a lot of discussion, still a lot of inflamed rhetoric around all this. So politics plays a huge part in this discussion. And of course, finally, Bede. Bede is a propagandist for his side. I've said this over and over again. We can't look at him as a pure historian. He is not just a historian. He is an actor in history. And he has an opinion, just like everybody else. And he is clearly forcing his opinion on the discussion. We don't really know for sure that there was no attempt by Christians to convert these people these Saxons. We know for a fact that the northern Welsh or Scottish ended up converting the Northumbrians for a, a period of time. So there is some sense that the, mostly because that's a huge argument, that's actually what sets up the Council of Whitby to argue about this because of course they were following the Celtic rules instead of the Roman rules and that became the big issue. And because Bede knows people who were involved in that council. He knows them well enough to know what the arguments are. He knows what their side said. He agrees with their side. So again, it's a bit like having the White House write your history about, you know, Desert Storm or, you know, take your pick of ideas. And that's what you're getting. You're not getting a history you're getting a history from this point of view and this point of view is is that the british are always wrong unless there's very specific reasons to prove that just because they're right it won't mean that the saxons aren't better and he will continue to go back to that over and over and over again i i mentioned this previously so believe me when i say that that's an important part of this um and finally on this we talk about this as being the key differences and what this means is we're talking about a, not a clear-cut Celtic church, but rather a flavor of Roman Catholicism, which is almost identical in every way from the other churches, but very controversial ways is different enough to be a political tool in the hands of some clever bishops. And let's be clear, these men were smart. They were educated. They were given, uh, you know, they, they knew how to read and write, and they were taught in the classics and they they learned and so these these men had time to play the game in a way that people in a more desperate situation who are worrying about the day-to-day -day, worrying about where their next meal is coming from aren't and so they had time to bicker argue fight and in fact give fuel to the fire of why the two sides disliked each other the reality of it is is Bede, Gildas and others have handed to the two sides the tools to create hatred and they built it up on the idea that 
I'm right, you're wrong, and nothing you're going to say is going to prove to me that I'm wrong. That is the argument that goes on here. It has nothing to do really with whether or not there's a legitimate reason for anybody worshipping the way they did. There's lots of legitimate reasons why both sides were right. It's just stubbornness, ego, and propaganda that divides the two sides. And so Christianity will change, and it will take the Welsh church the longest to change. Eventually, they will come to believe in Easter as dictated by the Roman faith. They will fall in line with the Catholics in all ways, but it will take another couple hundred years of this argument going on. Meanwhile, Ireland converts fine. Scotland and the North, Old North convert to this way of thinking, but even they didn't necessarily go quietly. And the disagreements and arguments that go on from this discussion will continue. And we're probably going to be talking about this again at some point down the road. Once we get past the bead era, there's going to be more discussions about who should be the head of the British church. Not just Wales, not just Cornwall, not just Scotland, but actually the entire island. And that debate will be taken to the popes, and the popes will flip back and forth, and it, it will be a continued discussion. And of course, this is one side of a very diverse situation. And the biggest problem we have in this whole discussion is we really only have evidence of one side. The Saxons, with Bede, wrote down what was going on. The Welsh, from all we can see, either didn't or we just don't have it. And so thus we don't have their opinions past Gildas until another hundred years or so past that. And unfortunately, that will color our opinions. It'll color a lot of what we understand. But make no mistake, these divisions are the reason why these two groups will bicker and fight for a long time to come. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have any comments or concerns, you can direct them to me at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter and Welsh History Pod. You can also contact me via Facebook, via facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And hey, if you send me a personal message on there, I will respond as best I can. If you have any questions, more than happy to answer them. Conversely, if you could give us a like and a review on iTunes, if you're one of our iTunes listeners, that would be excellent because that is something that helps us be found by more and more people. I appreciate everything everyone's doing, and I hope to talk to you later. Anyway, take care, everybody. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute.
and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.